0: Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Drew Trotter. Drew has been speaking on the intersection of faith and film for several decades now in various contexts, weaving together his love of film and his theological training. He holds a Master of Divinity degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of Cambridge. Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you. Good to see you too, my friend. Hey, I I have two sons in college who love to watch movies, and I I know they're not alone. So I thought it would be helpful to have an episode of College Faith in which we discuss how to watch a movie. (laughs) And I know the answer to that is more than just turn on the TV or, in these days, to, to open the computer and to flop on the couch. And, and I can think of no one better than you to help us delve more deeply into that question of how to watch a movie so that we can flourish. And uh, you've, for a number of years, written reviews of movies. I always find them very insightful. They pick up themes I missed or make connections to life that that are really rich. So uh, I wanted to have you on the show and uh, have you help us think more about how to watch a movie. But first... Tell me how you got interested in this area.
1: I've always loved movies personally. Okay. But it's a great question that I'm not sure I've ever been asked because I, I do think back immediately to the my time in college when I was beginning to be challenged to think about everything,
2: hmm.
1: not just some things. Mm-hmm. Not just the disciplines that I was studying, right? which in fact were English literature and film to some degree, history, um, that sort of liberal arts kind of education. But I also realized that I was spending a great deal of time, and you'll certainly get this, a great deal of time uh, being entertained. I was watching a lot of television. I was going to a lot of movies. I was enjoying myself. And that's something that I began to think about and um, began to really realize was having a powerful influence in my life. Um, Mm. And so I did that. Then I moved on from there, went to seminary and and taught school for three years after that, uh, high school, and realized this was continuing to happen and how few people actually had been challenged the way I was during college. To think well about stuff. This is Francis Schaeffer and all that sort of thing. So,
0: for our listeners, for context, so Francis Schaeffer, you read some of his his stuff that helped you?
1: Oh, I did. Yeah, uh, long story, but part of my part of my personal story is um, is my mother sent me two books in the fall of my first year in college. Okay, uh, one of them she had just gone down to the Christian bookstore and said, "My son's going off to college. What can you do that that can help me?" you know, keep him in the faith and all this kind of stuff that parents do. Sure. And uh, this guy said, well, there's this book. This guy's been dead now for eight or 10 years, but but this book is selling more and more. And it's a wonderful book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And this other book is just flying off the shelves. It's the first book that this guy's ever written as far as I know, but everybody seems to just love it. And it was called Escape from Reason by Francis Schaeffer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, Francis Schaeffer, who cared deeply about the Christian faith and thinking well about it, but also uh, popular culture and its effect on human beings.
0: Okay, so that, that really helped you start to watch movies a little more thoughtfully and critically?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. And then as I was a teacher in high school, I began to think about it more as a teacher and rather than as just a consumer. Hmm. So I began to codify some things and develop ways to watch movies and teach movies in my classrooms and uh, try to help people think well about movies as well as much more difficult. Then you didn't even have VHS, much less <laughs> uh, DVDs and now streaming. It was Movies were accessible only in the theater and only for a limited time. Mm-hmm. So um, it, really, it really became an amazing thing when the, when the videotape came out and started a whole revolution. People just sure. forget about videotapes and laugh about them. But boy, that's when the change was made.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Movie on demand.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could watch them on television if and when they came on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. there was no on demand at all. Exactly. So I began to formulate questions and I developed a a movie seminar that helps people to think about these things. And so what we'll do over the course of this discussion is try to condense three hours of stuff that I teach, which should lead people into much, much more actual thinking and critical speaking about movies and stuff.
0: Good. Well, let me start with the 30,000 foot level question. How do movies shape us as people, as spiritual beings?
1: Well, it's a great question, and it all has to do with something that's even deeper than and more abstract in some ways, as concrete as it actually is in its manifestation, um, and that is stories shape people. Mm. And we enter into stories, we are living our own story all the time, uh, we have to think about stories, but we don't usually abstract it. We don't usually pull back from that and say, okay, what was my story like today? Or whose story did I learn more about today? We just did it. And the same thing is true with visual and auditory uh, information inputs. Words you get both from reading them, they're both visual, but that's very abstract. And uh, then audible, and that's less abstract. You you have things going on in your mind when you hear people speak to you. You're You're inventing on the fly images and ideas for what those words actually mean to you.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's why people can hear the exact same sentence. Two or three people may hear that sentence from somebody, and they get different meanings from that sentence than even the person who was saying it. And he has to clarify what he meant by that sentence Mm and how he meant it and and what he was trying to say. And of course, we have this problem when we read scripture. It's the problem of interpretation of words. Mm -hmm. And I am very, very big on movies not being just visual. Everybody talks about being a visual learner, and actually nobody is a visual learner. All of us are formulating words in our minds as we see pictures or as we live life and experience the visual and are then uh, living by what those words are. And the better we can actually codify those words, the better we can explain what we think we know, the more we know it. And the better we know it and the more it's a part of us. Steven Spielberg once once was asked, how do you, how do you answer the charge about movies manipulating you? And he said, manipulate me? Well, of course they they manipulate you. That's what, that's what we're in the film business to do, is to manipulate you. But so is everybody else. Everybody's trying to get you to enter into their story. Everybody's trying to get you to do what they want you to do. With movies, we just want to manipulate people to laugh, or to think, or to feel, or to cry, so that they will have an experience that benefits them. And Spielberg's, you know, a good guy. He's claims at least not to be after the money. Uh, That's true and not true for all of these people, (laughs) um, filmmakers that is, but they, they acknowledge that they're trying to manipulate you. That's what it's all about. So I think that's what changes us. I think the more we live our stories and articulate the stories of others that come into our frame of reference, the more we grow as human beings. That's what we become. And that's why it's so important for us, you know, to have as much as I am for engaging culture, to have regular times of input that have to do with scripture and prayer and Christian friendship and submission to preaching and to the work of the church. All of that shapes us in good, positive ways film it's a matter of what the film's about and how it works as to how 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 it is leading us on what direction it's leading us Hmm. when
0: i hear echoed in this the thoughts of aristotle and virtue ethics i don't know if this has been drawn out or if you want to say more about it he said you know we're formed by the people we're around and of course in his day there was no such thing as a movie so it was direct contact but in a sense it sounds like it's the same thing you were formed by the, the stories we enter into now through the movies we watch, and then that shapes us as part of this now community of people we're, we're in relationship with. Is that is there a parallel there? Or are there some connections?
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. And a lot of people don't realize that in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he devoted two chapters to friendship, mm-hmm. to what friends are. So what I would add to that. Stan, is the component of trust. Mm. We learn the most from people that we trust. If we love our parents and they love us, we trust them more and we are shaped even more by them. If we trust someone, then as, as we put it, barriers are down. Yeah. We're not expecting things to enter in that change us, but they do. And this is, again, why you don't just go to a movie to be entertained. Nobody is just being entertained in a movie in some sort of unqualified, abstract way that isn't changing them. Whatever experience they are having, that experience is going to change them. And the better thing is to have your mind involved in that and being able to put it up against, and here we'll begin to get to some of the principles, put it up against what we believe to be true as Christians. And think about it and dialogue about it with others and let that experience then of whatever that input is, whether it's a good book, whether it's a movie, but particularly movies, because we generally just sit there and for two hours, we are being assaulted by a story that is incredibly deeply formed in order to manipulate us in terms of everything from color schemes, From composition within the frame of the movie and positions of people on the screen, from sound to music to dialogue, all of that is there constructing something that is to assault you and to make you into some different kind of person. And the more you learn what they're trying to do to you, the better it is for you to discard pieces that are not good or or not. I mean, one of the things that is just nobody writes about, nobody even thinks about anymore. And we've just had this huge ruling in the moment that you and I are living in right now. The uh, abortion decision, uh, canceling Roe v. Wade, just got made last last Friday. But that goes all the way back, Stan, to our understanding that has been Pretty deeply involved in our culture for at least the last 80 years of sexual expression between even two consenting heterosexual adults being fine. There should be no restrictions on that. That's nobody else's business. That's not anything that anybody should be worried about. And that came, I believe, in the 60s. It broke out, but was there in the 50s. 40s, 30s, 20s and was publicly promoted strongly in film. And even when you had the production code of the 1930s and 40s, you had people who were falling in love or people who were it was implied that they were sleeping together even though it couldn't be stated and couldn't be shown on the on the screen and all the most famous films and best films People films that people wanted to watch were implying that and uh, showing that. And it just got into the culture and now it's just there no matter what. Yeah. I just watched Tom Cruise in Maverick yesterday and I didn't have a, a single moral problem with the entire movie except in that area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
0: mm-hmm. it was just
1: a sleep and just done and sure, no thinking about it.
0: So to summarize... We implicitly trust movies to, uh, to tell us stories that we, we implicitly want to embrace as true. And if we don't step back and, and ask questions, then we'll end up embracing ideas, embracing narratives, embracing values that that we don't even know we're embracing just because they're in the movie and we're trusting the movie to, to tell us how to think about these things. And then we end up uh, down the road without even questioning these things that we've come to be tutored in or to, to to have learned from the the movies we watch. Is that a good summary and, and an example of yeah. of sexual ethics being the the case study?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. I you used a very important word that I hadn't may have not even mentioned, but I didn't think that I had and gets us back to Francis Schaeffer, And that's the word truth. Part of the problem is that we've separated truth and put it in this box that's called university education or uh, studying for a test or doing something that has to do with what is a fact or not that is separated from our emotions and or the rest of our life. And truth is never separated that way in Scripture. Truth and goodness and beauty are all wrapped together in the one true God and we need to recognize that truths are going to change us in terms of how we act morally as well in our lives and in our culture and we'll look the other way on sexual things because we just feel like you know it's it's just the way life is it's there's no there's no way to judge that mm-hmm. and I think movies had a big part in doing that but they but they've done that over and over and over again no Fortunately, a whole lot of movies, often movies that have nothing to do with the faith, teach very good values that Christians would agree with. And so virtues get implanted in people that are good. Let's go back to Maverick. The whole idea of patriotism, the idea that our armed forces guys are real people and they have real problems, but they stand for something— They stand for something that's good and and important, and they're willing to risk their lives for it. All of that is implicitly taught in that movie and um, is a strong it's a strong teaching of it. So there are good things that I think are are taught in films um, that, again, have nothing to do with the faith. Mm -hmm.
0: Let me put a point on the question then that this raises for me. You've made clear and given examples of how movies shape us. And you've talked about the challenges that presents to us if we're not aware of it. And if we decouple truth from entertainment, for instance, but how can we leverage that fact to our advantage? The fact that movies shape us. You've alluded to it, but say a little bit more on how we can intentionally leverage the influence of movies in our lives.
1: Well, I think it's very important that you Try to do two things, but you do one thing for sure. The first is try to go see movies with others. Usually people do. They they look at it as a communal experience. So go to see the movie with a group of friends. Go to see a movie with, obviously, people from your church group or something like that. And then the second thing, which is harder to do, but you you need to do even more importantly, and that is talk about it with somebody. And don't just say, oh, I liked that movie say, why did you like that movie? And I've developed a whole set of 10 questions that I think really get at the heart of what movies are about and what they're doing. And they help us to do something that's going to sound like it's contradictory to something I was just talking about. And that is they help us to objectify the experience of film going. They help us to bring it to the surface so that we can talk about it and use language to discuss it and interact with each other about it so that the experience that we have gets shaped in a different way by our own language and by our own thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. Of these 10 questions, the first three are about formal elements of the movie. Um, What scene do you think was the most important scene in the movie and why? What scene hit you the most and why? Uh, what character did you most identify with mm-hmm. and why? If any of them, you might not have liked any of them. And then um, the, the third one is, what do you think the director was trying to say in that movie? What do you think the guy who really oversees the whole film? Now, a lot is made of this, that directors are the creators of movies. They are, but there's a hugely important place For a whole lot of other people, it's really a collaborative medium beyond any medium that I know of. Mm -hmm. There are directors, sure, but there's the writer. Often they're the same person, so there you go. Um, But there's the writer of the original script in the first place. There is everything from the cinematographer who makes lots of choices, usually anyway, um, that the director just agrees with or goes by with an eye to the visual and how that will support the idea of the scene Mm -hmm. Um, then there's the editor who's extremely important and that's why a lot of directors Stanley Kubrick never allowed anybody to edit his movies he edited all of his own movies Mm. so they really are creations of the same person for the most part but you've even got the person who does the music for something um Mm -hmm bring something to it that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. So the more that you understand what these people are trying to do and how they formally do it to shape and undergird a scene, the better off you are. And so all of that is involved in those three questions.
0: So I've seen your 10 standard questions that you use to analyze movies and draw these themes out. They're excellent. And instead of just listing them, I wonder if we could just take a movie and you do this for us. You model this. Uh, You just mentioned Top Gun uh, Maverick you saw yesterday and uh, I saw it too. Uh, Loved it. I'd love to ask these 10 questions of you about that movie and you show us how you'd walk through that and analyze the movie via these questions. Can we do that? Sure, sure. Great. And in the process, the 10 questions will become clear and I'll put them in the show notes so that folks can go and Grab those for movies they watch, but uh, but first, and you mentioned the first three. I'll just reiterate: first in Top Gun Maverick, what was your favorite scene and why? And which scene do you think was most important for the filmmakers and why?
1: Well, I think there there are two. Um, I believe that the scenes with, and it's kind of hard to to pinpoint one because the the same idea gets done in two or three scenes. They are the scenes where um, Maverick is filled with self-doubt and expresses that to both his commanders, his friends, to Val Kilmer. And that scene with Val Kilmer, who is the admiral who has helped him and who is now dying. Iceman. Iceman. Exactly. That idea of self-doubt was so important for the filmmaker to get across in order for the person who has the great triumph at the end that is absolutely beyond belief becomes believable. It becomes accessible to a person sitting out there in the audience who's never going to be Tom Cruise, who's never going to be able to stand uh, you know, Mach 10 <laughs> pressure and, uh, on them and still retain control of the plane. They're just not going to be able to do all the things that he does in that movie. But they have to make, they have to believe that he's real. And this is something I think they really tried to make absolutely sure. So for me, those scenes were absolutely critical.
0: And so to your point earlier, then, that gives us a role model, right? of Somebody who faces adversity and steps up to the plate and works through it so it's a, it's a it's it's a virtue modeled incarnated which we can look at and then say i want to be like that that's my model
1: yeah and you know it, the the answer about the about the uh, most important character has got to be answered twofold nobody watches that movie and doesn't identify with tom cruise they want to be tom cruise that's who their role model is mm-hmm. he's the star he's the he's the main character but they did a very good job of recreating from the original Top Gun and from just life in general, a variety of kinds of people who are people who follow Maverick in the various fighter pilots. They're the best of the best, but each one of them is different.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
1: the shy, kind of uncertain Bob who has no creative imagination, but is who is who is very good at his job. There's the woman, there's the You know, every kind of color of person and background of person is there among the pilots. You can you can pick any of them. And there's the great looking, you know, white guy who's a little too arrogant. You know, there's just all these stereotypes from the culture and from Mm -hmm. from our people, period, to play off against Tom Cruise. So that was interesting. I actually identified with the woman pilot more than any of the rest of them because you know she seemed to know where she was and who she was and what she was doing, but she seemed to understand the balance in this whole thing and the idea of teamwork and the the importance of it. And hmm. at least that's what I'd like to be—is somebody who understands teamwork. Uh,
0: it's interesting. had picked that up, but yeah, that was central to her character. That's really helpful. Really interesting.
3: We will return to the show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students, that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this college faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to College Faith.
0: Third question. In one sentence, what was this movie about, and why do you think that's the case, and what else was it trying to say beyond that, perhaps?
1: I think it was trying to say when the pressure is on, in whatever situation you're in, Don't think, do. And I have a problem with that, too. Um, I said that there was only one thing that I had a problem with in the movie, but actually, I have a problem with something fundamental to it, and that is that all of life is about simply acting or doing, that if we think too much about things, we're in trouble. But there's a truth there, and that truth is faith it's trust you have to believe you have to believe in your own experience perhaps you have to believe in in what has worked before i don't think about it when i get up out of this chair and start to walk forward i just do it and i think there's a there's a real truth there in some places in our workplace and in our relationships with others very very often especially with a Christian who's trained to think well that they need to learn to trust the Holy Spirit's leading in a particular situation and just believe that they're doing the right thing and not overanalyze. And I think Paul argues this even in first Timothy. So mm-hmm. I think that's what the movie was trying to say and has a lesson for Christians while it's a dangerous lesson for just everybody.
0: Right. Right. Well, and again, it makes me think of spiritual formation, right? Where, Mm -hmm. where you do practice certain disciplines, you do work, you do prepare so that in the moment you don't have to think you just do in the moment you do the right thing, which seems to parallel all the time they spend running through the simulation for the real event that hopefully they know so well, all the turns and accelerations and so on and so forth, that they don't have to think in the moment because they thought so much about it beforehand and prepared so well. Is that fair?
1: I think that's absolutely right. And let's bring it down into the real, none of us are going to fly these F-18s into, you know, enemy territory and blow things up. I, I'm,
0: hold, I'm holding that hope yet. So speak for yourself, but, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> speak for myself. Okay, okay. But almost every day, we're confronted with a situation where we can tell a little white lie or not, where we can say a little harmful thing sarcastically that maybe won't hurt somebody, but might.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We make choices all the time. We have to be able to, to make them, usually because they're right in a moment, especially for very verbal people. You can tell that I'm a verbal person. I'll just keep talking until you shut me up. <laughs> Nevertheless we're confronted with things, we're confronted by our children, okay, all of a sudden there's a moment. We've got to correct that six-year-old or not. Let them stretch the decision between maybe even two possible goods. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to trust that we're shaped, formed in such a way by God that He can work in and through us in that moment without us having to think about it too much before the moment's gone.
0: Sure. Well, and I can think of college students thinking about a dozen examples every day in their classes and their preparation, study, research, writing, whatever it is that (laughs) where these things come to the fore. And in
1: their relationship.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: A lot of things you face.
0: Yep. Well, your fourth question, one of my favorites of your list, what is the movie's view of truth, goodness and beauty?
1: Well, I divide those up. Um, Aristotle did this classically; the Greek philosophers did, but so did Christians pick up on this and really work with it. As you already mentioned, Thomas Aquinas, but so did Augustine and others. And so you can separate them out for moments of discussion and of objectifying the experience. I like to do it in the order: truth, goodness, and beauty. So metaphysics, uh, ethics and aesthetics. Because I do believe there's a relationship between the three. Our goodness is based on our understanding of truth. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of a beautiful life is based on a good life that's based on a true life. How well do we accord with reality? So how well does this movie accord with reality? Well, there is some group, apparently, in the Navy, called Top Gun. So there's some truth to this. There's something there. There is truth. And then there's goodness. And we've talked a lot about goodness because the emotions tend to move towards doing something good or evil, you know, and, and pushing your will to move towards the good or the or the evil. And that's why the will needs to be trained by the mind, in my in my view of things, which mm-hmm. Alice Willard, a wonderful philosopher out in. Southern California laid out to a T in a lot of ways. So I would recommend his books at any time. And then mm-hmm. I think what is the most mysterious and the most difficult, but maybe even the most important for those of us who think a lot and care a lot about truth and about goodness is the mystery and the, the inspiration of all that beauty brings. Because we really have, and this is what's so mysterious and amazing to me about artists, about painters or poets. I think all of us have a little bit of artist in us, a little bit of creativity in us, but some are much more powerfully creative than others. And I don't consider myself at all to be in that camp. I think it's very important because what beauty brings to us is humility. And there was a beauty in that movie of sunsets when Maverick is thinking about things or standing on a beach thinking about things that is natural beauty that has him in a position of being small within the universe that suits well the idea that he's trying to do something that looks impossible. Let's mention the other big franchise Tom Cruise is known for, Mission Impossible. And this was an impossible mission. And it spoke well to me of how with God, all things are possible, but only with him. And that's beauty. That's beauty at its deepest form. And the more a movie can show that in beautiful ways that really affect you without you even being able to know it, or a great visual scene, I do believe in the visual of movies, don't get me wrong, even without words, they were trying to depict the love that Tom Cruise had and its connection to sexual attraction and did so amazingly in one shot near the end of the movie where Jennifer uh, Connelly is standing against this beautiful cool car and she's come back to him to where he is and sought him out after her sailing trip You know, he went and tried to find her and tried to make good on his promise that he would never break her heart again and all this stuff. And that's that's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And the beauty of a relationship that's built on something other than just sex or having the whole thing perfect or being two 20-year-olds or something, that these are 40-year-olds who have children, and she at least she does. And it's clear that there are responsibilities involved in this relationship and that it's a It's a beautiful relationship and not just based on sex. So truth, goodness, and beauty, all in Maverick.
0: Can't say I noticed all those. So that's really helpful just to hear you unpack that. So fifth question, we're halfway there. Does the movie have a viewpoint on the nature of God? And if so, what do you think that viewpoint is?
1: There are a couple of shots in the dogfights at the end where the planes are so small they're almost not able to be seen and i think that was i think that was intentional to demonstrate the huge vast universe with these two little planes and all that matters on them you know fighting for human life and trying to get the hero out and trying to get rooster back to the boat that's not all just done in this movie with with huge close-ups, and the the places that are emotionally so engaging. It was like, okay, they're battling around, they're running around in God's universe, and will he, will he save them, or will he take them to himself, or will he cause them to die, or however you want to think about it as a Christian? I might be wrong there. To me, reminded me of that. I've already mentioned the sunsets, the sort of reflective times looking out the window on the shoreline and the vast ocean and all that. Mm -hmm. Often that's the only place where God gets seen, but there are several shots of a cross on the spire on the steeple of the church. And, you know, one other place
0: that I think God in the biblical story shows up in Top Gun and it actually shows up in almost every movie at a more fundamental level is the biblical story or narrative of creation fall redemption, right yeah, where things things start good, a nod to creation in this case uh he's working on his plane is you know things open or and he's doing some test piloting and things are things are good, and then fall things go wrong there's there's a a a problem that this unnamed country has this nuclear silo that has to be destroyed, and so there's a problem to be addressed. And the rest of the story is working out that redemption or redeeming the situation so that things are put back right, so that all is good with the world, right? The, the biblical narrative. Right. Uh, and of course, that, that is woven through the story in other ways, too, in terms of his relationship with the rooster. Yeah. That seems to me in every movie where the gospel shows up loud and clear if you're looking for it.
1: Well, you you it's a standard. And there's been some pushback on it, but really... Ninety-five percent of your film script writers, and of your directors and of filmmakers, see every movie in three acts, mm-hmm. and the the first act is setting the setting, the situation, setting up even what seems to be the major problem. Then in the second act, there is the fall, there is the the difficulty, uh, and in, for Cruise, of course, it's getting fired, and then this miraculous, and they talked about one miracle, two miracles in terms of that plane, they even used biblical language, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. And then the um, redemption is the John Hamm character, making him the team leader, mm-hmm. you know, making him go fly, he wasn't just going to be the teacher anymore. And he wasn't the teacher anymore. He's now the leader, which is what he really knows how to do well, what he's trained for, and what he can do without thinking. And, of course, all of this rooster stuff is a, a subplot that moves, as you pointed out, right alongside that. Mm-hmm. And makes it a really good movie. Makes it more than just this, like a, like a Marvel Comics movie. The Marvel Comics movies are all about good, in the abstract, triumphing over evil, or not. Mm-hmm. But the characters that carry that out are all subverted here the characters it's a very humanistic move. top gun is because it's the human beings in it that make it every it's the pilot who flies the plane right that they talk about all the time and the pilots beat the mechanistic you know fifth generation fighters who are even made to look like Darth Vader i don't know if you picked up on that
0: <laughs> i did sure
1: <laughs> they do i mean
0: you know it's it's crazy sure as well as picked up them having to fly through the narrow tunnel and hit just the right spot just as in the oh yeah yeah. oh yeah the 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 death star flight yeah
1: star wars four, the new Mm -hmm. hope
0: yeah you know uh, on this creation fall redemption theme in movies uh this is a side note i know a lot of christian professors that we work with have hosted movie nights where they'll have students over and they'll watch a movie like like maverick and and then just ask questions to draw their students out so the students can start to see that, yes, this gospel story shows up everywhere. And I'm already familiar with it in the movies I watch. Yep. And why is it I have such a need to see movies end with redemption? Why is it I have this deep-seated desire to see things redeemed? Well, that's... That's an inkling that the gospel is actually, as the scriptures say, uh, there's eternity in the heart. It's already embedded in our understanding of reality. And, you know, movies, I think, well, certainly in some cases can help students realize the gospel and contemplate and even come to faith as a result of starting to think about these things.
1: You know, that makes me think of this movie, Top Gun, 95%, maybe 98% of the movies that are made today are made within a human context in this world so that even if there's redemption, it's qualified Mm. or somebody tragically dies that won't come back Mm -hmm. Um, or there's some hurt or pain or something. And that's very real and, and very important to uh, show in movies sometimes. But one of the things I liked about top gun and it's very rare. I heard these old people going out saying, well there you go. It was a pretty nice Hollywood ending. And that's an old phrase now. Mm-hmm. It, the Hollywood endings haven't been that way for 30 years, 40 years. Mm. But they used to end where everything got resolved positively. And it was this wonderful thing like the celebration you know on the deck where even John Ham is all excited, you know. And that's our hope, Stan. That's what we preach for the uh, the final state is heaven coming down to earth, and making all things new, not just mostly new, or partly new, or, you know, all the stuff that we are stuck in now, we'll admit that, and we've got to admit the reality of that, hadn't happened yet, but we hope that it will, and we hope with confidence that it will, and so a movie Reflecting that, even if it doesn't, you know, have Bible verses at the end saying this is the it's like the Eric Um Liddell character in Chariots of Fire. He's fully redeemed.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Harold Abrahams is not really. It's a really interesting contrast there because the movie is about both people, not just Eric Liddell. And Christians love that movie because I think it shows them what is going to happen as much as it shows them what happens in life, you know generally, that through pain and suffering, you do have benefits and good things happen.
0: Yeah, good. All right, sixth question. And I think we've talked about this already, but what is the movie's view of the difference between the natural and the supernatural, if it has one?
1: I don't think it does. It's it's humanistic, pretty much. It, there, may be, there may have been hints and whispers, certainly, that we can take and apply within our thinking but it's humanistic with a twist, and the twist is mankind is not made the be-all and the end-all of all existence. There is this humility aspect of Tom Cruise that does seem to say we're all in something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly turned into patriotism in the movie, but not entirely. And so it'd be interesting to know. Mm-hmm. Seven. Seven. What is the movie's view of moral authority? Great question. I think it's a very hierarchical view with the important viewpoint that the individual has to know when to do the right thing is better than to do the obedient thing. Mm -hmm. Now, for Christians, ultimately obeying God, there's no difference. We do the right thing by doing the obedient thing to God. But we better be sure it's God, because a lot of things are done in His name that aren't the right thing, mm-hmm. and we make mistakes even there. And that's why forgiveness is so important. That's why repentance is so important. It's got a lot of hierarchy there because they they still have to obey things. And the original Top Gun was really important to stay as the wingman, stay as the wingman, stay no matter. How much you feel like you need to peel off to do something, stay on the wing, stay on the wing, and that's the way you win in these dogfights. And that's something Rooster knew and did, but he also broke the rules by taking off and going going after Maverick. He knew when it was right to try to bring somebody home or die trying.
0: Yeah, and one of the pivotal points in the movie when Maverick decides to break from orders and take the jet and fly the through the gauntlet to show everyone that this can be done, but he was not authorized to do so and uh, laid it all on the line to do what he knew was right at that moment.
1: And the two people that he sought the most help from, and this is where these scenes that I mentioned earlier were the most important for me, where he was expressing his own self-doubt. The two people, Val Kilmer and Jennifer Connelly, both told him, no, trust yourself. And get it done. You'll figure out a way, she says to him. And then the next thing we see is John Hamm teaching the guys. And then all of a sudden on the screen, Maverick is flying into the stimulation and he's done what he wasn't supposed to do.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, related eighth question What is the movie's view of people and their relationships?
1: Well, that's way too big to answer, isn't it? You could go on and (laughs) on and on. Yeah. Trust people realize that people under your authority actually need to be given space. You need to trust them to do things like uh, Maverick has to trust Rooster at the end, but they should have been trusting Maverick too. John Hamm didn't trust Maverick and he learns to trust and good things happen. Mm -hmm. Caring for people and being willing to sacrifice yourself for them, that's just a basic military theme that you're willing to die for your country. Well, you don't die for your country. As Saving Private Ryan points out, you die for the wife you left back home. You die for the children that you left back home. You die for the neighbors that you have who are depending upon you to do the best job you can to be a part of this military thing. That's your country. It's others that you actually know. And frankly, it does go beyond that. We need to realize that. And take responsibility for voting and for, you know, being a part of this incredible country that we're a part of at so many different levels. I think that's a major thing that uh, had to do with relationships. Well,
0: what's the movie's view of evil? Ninth question.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, there is an enemy. They obviously never named the evil. Yep. They did not say this place was in Iran. They did not say this place was in Iraq. They didn't say it was in Afghanistan. They didn't say it was in Russia. They didn't say it was in China. Every one of those enemies of America today have desert places where this thing could be.
0: Well, and even the enemy pilots' face shields made it so you couldn't identify any ethnicity or anything.
1: And none of the the planes had markings that were clear. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really, really interesting. The Russians can say, oh, he was talking about Iran you know, and the Iranians can say he was talking about Iraq. And and I like that because in Scripture, we are commanded to love our enemies. Now, that means human beings, but there are very real enemies. We call him Satan. We call him the fallen angel. We call them principalities and powers. We call them demons. You know, there are abstractions that are beyond us in the supernatural world, that are true enemies, we can always fight them because they're always evil. And we need to understand that and be willing to accept that. And Christianity gives us a great blessing because everybody, deep in their heart, as much as they know there's a God, they also know there's a devil. <laughs> they also know that evil exists and mm-hmm. that it's it's wrong to do certain things and right to do other things. Every one of us has a moral framework. Mm-hmm. We have differences of opinion about what that moral framework, how it works out, but we all have a moral framework because we all know there's evil. And the movie abstracted that so much that it really comes out being pretty Christian in the way that it says, these are abstractions. These are things we need to think beyond ourselves to fight and to battle in deep and meaningful ways.
0: Right. And not to identify individuals or ethnicities or nations as the ultimate enemy in a conflict but it's really about about these principalities that aren't a specific group of people or nation
1: that's exactly right Mm -hmm. i mean look look how good of friends we are with germany now and how many good things they're doing 70 years ago that certainly wouldn't have been the case well 80 years ago
0: yeah yeah right all right last question What is the movie's view of the solution to mankind's problems?
1: Well, here's where it probably gets the most humanistic. Just be good and humble, and have this, have these self doubts. But in the end, make sure uh, not to think, but to do, and you'll come out on top, and everything will be fine. You're gonna win the big battles, and blah blah blah. While there are so many good pieces, the ultimate statement of it really doesn't point beyond the kind of universe generally hmm. or the, the bigger thing that we might be in it doesn't point to a personal god and it certainly doesn't do it in any kind of specific way but we need to be able to articulate what it is that is the real solution and the real solution as you and i both know is faith in jesus christ and uh all that that means
0: mm-hmm. good well, thanks for illustrating through your 10 questions what it looks like to actually analyze a movie. And uh, it just gives a good example, I think, to listeners of of what we all ought to do as we watch movies. Whether we formally go through those questions, it might be something to print them off or have them on your phone or something. And just to, you know, scroll through them after a movie to spur your thinking about those issues that the movie implicitly states, but without actually asking that question and reflecting on it, you might miss. Yeah. Like, I know I missed a number of the things you drew out, and you're thinking through those questions related to Top Gun Maverick. so so I appreciate that.
1: And this was a popcorn movie. This is a movie everybody thought they were just going to do to be entertained, and there's all of this rich teaching and viewpoints underlying it that need to come out by people talking about it.
0: mm. Well, Drew, we've got just a little bit of time, and i got a couple more questions I want to get your take on. Okay. First, what's the difference between watching movies on the big screen and watching them online?
1: Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Um, The big screen is a communal experience. Americans have very few of these now outside of sporting events and movies. Um, When you're watching it on the small screen, you as an individual control everything. You can pause it and go get something to eat. You can pause it and go to the restroom. You can turn the lights up or turn the lights down. You can make it like the experience in terms of its hold on you by having a really large screen, having a little in-your-house theater or something, and, and you can crank up the speakers that simulates what goes on in the in the movie theater. But it's still controlled much more by you. So I think it's a less impactful experience and I think that's why we need to go on and on and on and on and on because it doesn't last for very long. Mm. But a movie you lasts for a few days and you want to see it again if you really liked it. How many people watch the same episode of Breaking Bad over again? They just don't do it, even as great as that series was and is powerful. On the other hand, the artist has two and a half hours, three hours maybe, but you've got one shot. And that's it. It's one story. With an hour per episode streaming series on Prime Video or HBO Max or whatever it is, you've got a lot of time to develop characters, to bring in various themes and various ideas. And you just have to keep a thread running through it really well to get people back. And when it's based too much on horror or impact, then you've got to do something in the last scene to make people want to watch the next episode. So like stranger things, they're not bringing you back because you love these kids anymore. They're bringing you back because there's some gore that's just happened. And you want to see what happens next or see if that person's actually dead or not, or or whatever, you know, right. Those are just tricks. Really. They're not very, very creative to be honest, but they have a powerful effect because you're spending that much more time with the entity even if you do have more control over it.
0: Hmm. So what do you think the the likelihood is of streaming and long form TV, just doing away with the standard two to three hour movie
1: format? So movies, I think are going to stay there. First of all, they're a great thing to take a date to. So there's always going to be kids wanting to go to movies. And huge amounts of this box office stand, and we didn't even talk about this, are parents taking little kids to the next Pixar movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's actually a whole nother conversation is how these movies that are aimed at the younger generation are more and more overtly including a worldview and values that are so diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview that it's it's scary what the next generation is being shaped to believe is actually true and good and beautiful. Yeah. Well, Drew, as we draw to a close, is there anything else you want to make sure we touch on on this on this important topic?
1: Well, I would I would encourage people to read about movies. There's a a great book. Look up the name Brian Godawa.
2: Mm -hmm. Sure.
1: G-O-D-A-W-A and anything by Bill Romanowski. Mm -hmm. Both difficult names, but important names in terms of analyzing popular culture and film and that sort of thing because there's, we didn't even talk about how music affects you within a film, or how composition within the frame affects you. For instance, the person right, up, and forward has a lot more power in the screen than anybody who's left, back, and down. Hmm. And usually authoritarian relationships are framed that way. And there's a famous scene In The Godfather, when Marlon Brando is sitting with Al Pacino in the back garden just before he dies and handing over the reins to him, Coppola knew, obviously, enough to have Brando forward, up, and right, and Pacino back, left, and down. And that was to show, to support the idea of the authority flowing. Mm. Um, That sort of thing is used all the time in movies, all the time. Look for it. So that's another part of objectifying the experience. Read about films.
0: Great. Well, this has been a great conversation. Wish we had another couple hours to unpack these things, but I appreciate the time you've given to share with us how we can watch movies better.
1: I've enjoyed this, Dan. Thanks.
0: That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace, encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.